Um, right, so let's start. Uh, so we're talking about the rise of the novel in the late 17th and the early 18th century. I think you've all mainly focused on Defoe, haven't you? Yeah. Um, but I thought we'd start by doing a bit of brainstorming about this word, the novel, and what's new about it, um, and where it comes from. Um, so do you do you want to start by giving me a sense of where you think... Well, first of all, perhaps it'll be, it might be helpful to say, what's it defined against? So what is the novel not for 18th century readers? It's kind of set in opposition to romance. OK, good. Uh, so, piece of, <laughs> so it's not the romance. <laughs> we'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. Anything else that it's not, do you think? They tend to be, like, shorter... And, and they were like prose instead of poetry. Okay, so yeah, so it's it's not poetry. Uh, it's the obvious thing to say, and I suppose in that respect you might want to think about. Um, now, now we tend well the classical distinction in in, ter in genre between um, that Aristotle establishes between epic and lyric and drama. Those three are the sort of major genres. We would now put the novel. A sort of subsume it under the idea of the epic, so a long fictional text. Aristotle makes a distinction on the basis of, of kinds of narration. So the lyric is a first-person narrative. Um, the drama sort of removes the narrator from the scene. He might be present in stage directions, or, or but but is not. At the moment you consume it, the narrator isn't, if you like, there, um, or the author isn't there. Um, and the epic tends to be third-person narration, yeah? long narration. So we would now think of the novel as a sort of subset of the epic. Um, but in this period, it's also most often sort of defined as not epic. Uh, that's your point, Abby, about it being short. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess it tends to focus on contemporary society rather than a classical ancient Okay, novel. so not ancient. Might be and a lot of them are first-person rather than third-person as well. So, I mean, that just kind of doesn't fit with the modern perspective of the English epic, I guess. Yeah. When you say a lot of them are first person... Well, um, out of the ones that I've read, the Defoe novels that I've read, are all in yes. first person. Yeah. That might... Well, let's put that... Well, I think that we, can, we might want to move everything over eventually <laughs> to the other side. That's where we usually <laughs> land up. Um, but... Um, Perhaps it would be a good idea to think about it as being... It, it, it does seem to somehow be per thought of as personal in some way, or having a person engaged, or, or being involved with character, doesn't it? And there are lots of genres that one might think of, or subforms of the novel that are popular in this period that one might think of. Um, so if you're thinking about first-person modes, um, what are the sort of obvious first-person modes of the first person? I mean, some of them are in the Defoe novels you've been reading. Um, I guess there's the idea of like a travel narrative. Yeah. So we've got travel. Um, things like the London Spy that are sort of criminal uh, kind of mm. records, I guess, mm. that's quite close to the phone. Criminal biography or autobiography. Um, And some of those, you know, these very famous Newgate narratives, which is what Mollfanders is based on, so so ordinary as clerics kind of make a bit of money on the side by taking people's um, confessions before execution or before deportation and then publishing them. Um, other things I was thinking about, uh, the letter novel, enormously... Um, successful mode in the 18th century kind of goes into a rapid decline in the early 19th century but um, and one of the earliest letter novels is um, Afro Ben's Love Letters Between a Nobleman and His Sister which is 1680s published in three volumes and of course what that allows is a kind of circuit of correspondence sometimes it's just one correspondent um, memoir um, diaries all of those things you might see as sort of proximate forms Although some of these things might then take us back to sort of saying if criminal autobiographies are, are sort of true in some sense. I think that's, they, it's kind of difficult. They might purport to be true, but mm. are probably not entirely true. 
Right. So perhaps we want to put <laughs> the distinction true on this borderline. <laughs> yeah, the distinction between fact and fiction is kind of more blurred maybe than we see it today. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing we might say about the novel ourselves as readers now is that we assume that novels aren't telling us true stories, that they're fictional. Um, so it is, but it doesn't seem so apparent that that simple equation would work here, that there's sort of, it's not true and it is fiction. Well, I guess like with Robinson Crusoe, there's that sort of very firm assertion, like um, in the prefatory material, that it is a truthful account. Mm. not fiction it kind of directly says that it, it's not fiction but that seems to be part of a rhetoric of sort of signposting that it is almost like history yeah. Yeah. seems to be not kind of incompatible with the novel like you can have truth like woven into a sort of yes and indeed I mean I don't know did I, any of you I should look at Leonard Davis's little book called Factual Fictions yeah I read some of that so what, do you remember what he argues? What's his? Um, maybe. <laughs> Was it him that um, wrote about the influence of diary keeping? No, not That might be Hunter or yeah, Robert Meyer. Oh yeah, he taught he um, talked about Defoe deplacing himself from the central role and kind of putting the influence onto his personas um, because of the way he uh, he says like in the on the frontispiece of Robinson Crusoe it says it says that it's true and it says written by himself. Right. So, um, because you both mentioned it, should we have a quick look at find my copy of Robinson Crusoe? Yeah, but I've got the frontispiece or the practice as part of it. Yeah, there's the yeah, okay. So, what, how would read it? Um, read it out to us, For Life and Strange, Surprising Adventures of Robinson Crusoe of York, Mariner, who lived eight and twenty years all alone in an uninhabited island on the coast of America, near the mouth of the Great River of Oronok, something like that. Um, having been cast on shore by shipwreck, wherein all the men perished but himself, with an account of how he was at last strangely delivered by pirates, written by himself. And then just the publishers. Okay. Does it have the price of it on that? Um, no, it doesn't. It just says who it's printed for. Okay. So what do we think about that? Um, because it's described as a life and strange, surprising adventures, there seems to be a kind of reluctance to term it a novel. Um, I think in more Flanders it's a similar thing. It's introduced as a history of yeah. 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 I was gonna say like as well in more Flanders he kind of says like oh it's her own words but I've had to change it to make it more acceptable so yeah he's kind of like yeah yeah so there's something it's like an as idea that he like sort of helped to construct it but that he wasn't the person that invented it in the first place yes yes and in fact he says he's tidied up her language doesn't he. Um, yeah, he says, like, um, had, uh, he's had no little difficulty to put it in a dress fit to be seen and make it speak language fit to be read. Yeah. And, of course, given that Mole does spend some of the time um, as a prostitute, this sort of dressing her up to make her look decent is a kind of interesting... Um, you know, the, and, the, and the book title is her name. The Fortunate Mistress and Mole Flanders, in a way, are... are you know, the, the book is the person, if you like, in that sense. There's this kind of conceit of the idea that the person is... A, 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 the book's kind of body there, and she has to be dressed up to make to become respectable uh, for a gentry reading class. I mean, some of the things we've been saying about the novel, we might want to say perhaps we shouldn't even be thinking about it in terms of genre. We might just want to be thinking about it as a kind of... It's new, just as a publishing phenomenon. This thing that it, that perhaps more it's more important to think about the novel in terms of the way it speaks to a reader, or in terms of the, of the people to whom it's marketed, than to think about it as having any kind of secure generic coordinates that we could identify. Um, and certainly, <coughs> Defoe sort of starts that this preface to Mole Flanders when he says the world's so taken up of late with novels and romances that will that it will be hard for a private history to be taken for genuine where the names and other circumstances of the person are concealed. 
and on this account we must be content to leave the reader to pass his own opinion upon the ensuing sheets and take it just as he pleases. So it's almost as though he's sort of saying there aren't any generic coordinates for this, it's up to you, the reader, to decide where to place yourself. He does a similar thing in the preface to Roxana as well, mm. and kind of um, even further than that suggests that uh, if the reader gets anything immoral from it, that's their own um, wickedness. Problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and in more Farmers as well, he says like something about how it's up to the reader to take some kind of moral from the story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. So one might want to sort of say that somehow the novel seems to be defined as something which has a a peculiar new openness for the reader. That what it's 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 making actually um, collections of papers in this period are called openings, <laughs> but it's somehow it's opening up to the reader a new vision. The strange and surprising adventures of Robinson. Crusades seem to be about that. I was thinking one of the ways in which people often talk about the novel, Congreve talks about the novel, for instance, in terms of saying, well, it doesn't give you extraordinary things, but actually Robinson Crusoe is saying it needs to give you something surprising, something, st- perhaps it's surprising in the sense of stimulating, <laughs> something that's going to get you excited and interested. Um, th- just going back to Leonard Davis, the, the, the point there that, that you can hear, I guess, in Well Flanders, that, um, the preface to more founders when he says that that point about whether people will take it as a genuine history is that leonard davis's point is that there's a kind of reverse a weird reverse psychology going on with fiction in the period where if um an author says that their work is fact then readers will have assumed that it was fiction um, when an author says it's fiction readers will assume that it's fact so there's a kind of counter there's a kind of normative counterway in which you read whereby you sort of say if if you're saying it's fiction it's because the author is trying to have a pop or, or critique a contemporary figure and doesn't want to be to land up in court so he says i've just made this up this isn't really robert walpole i'm slandering the prime minister it's just a really bad prime minister <laughs> it's fiction when someone says it's uh fictional um people then sort of look for the fact behind it when they say it's fact so looking at the frontispiece to Robinson Crusoe you might think actually that readers would have looked at that and said I recognize that this is fictional so it's based on a published account of someone who was shipwrecked but it's also true if you read Kate Loveman's um, Forging Fictions isn't it Um, her book it's also true that there are lots of impossibilities in Robinson Crusoe which were very early picked up by the reviewers there aren't any uninhabited islands in that area, for instance, for Crusoe to have been shipwrecked on. And people knew that from geography books. Okay. Um, before we hear a bit about what you've each done in your essays, I just want to uh, I'll give you a hand out so we can, sort of, we can refer back to some of this if we get a chance as we talk, but this is sort of more sort of putting together some of those ideas that we've talked through you to hold on to and thinking more about the novel. Um, let's hear from you about what you were writing about. Um, and there should be lots of overlap because you've all been thinking about Defoe in different ways. Um, Abby, do you want to start us off? Sure. Um, I actually took a quote from Congreve um, that I found on one of the papers. Oh, great. Um, which is, novels are of a more familiar nature. Come near us and represent to us intrigues in practice, delight us with accidents and odd events, but not such as are wholly unusual or unprecedented. Um, so basically I was looking at like the idea of the familiar in the three. Um, and essentially... Um, so what three? Sorry, remind oh, us. Oh, sorry. Uh, more Flanders, Robinson Crusoe and Love and Excess. Um, um, I thought you could think about like the familiar in terms of like style and stuff as well as just like the actual like plot and like what happens. Mm-hmm. So like Love and Excess would maybe have been more like familiar to readers at the time because there was so much like literature that was like in that kind of like style. Mm-hmm. So even though maybe like the events aren't as like fantastical or whatever, um, like maybe it was more kind of the sort of thing that readers were expecting to get when they read it, even though the style is like a lot more ornate and like stuff like Robinson Crusoe tries to be really kind of almost like factual in the way it puts in lots of like precise details and everything to make it seem like it could be 
believable. Mm. It's odd, isn't it? Because love in excess. Um, for us, as as modern readers of the novel, it seems odd to think about that as being read as a naturalistic novel. I mean, it has characters called Alavisa and yeah. Meliora and the I Count. Listen. The repetition in each part as well. The repetition of how um, each part kind of parallels. They all parallel each other with the kind of similar love triangle events. Yes. And just the implausibilities too, like I swear. Every other chapter, someone will die for their... Yeah. Yes. Can find they run on a sword weeks. when they happen to be passing yeah. through a, a passageway. It's sort of true of Defoe as well, though. There's a lot of coincidences that probably wouldn't really happen in real life, like Marvland is running into her ex-lovers all the time. Yeah, all married to her. Yeah, I'm marrying her. It's kind of like a happy version of Thomas Hardy. Like you have completely <laughs> improbable coincidences, but yeah, she comes out okay. but you might want to. I suppose the thing to do would be to measure it again. I don't know. Did you did you all read Arcadia last term? Yeah. So if you if you measured it against Sydney's Arcadia and so, think about how distant it is from, or what's the difference? If we're still thinking about it, it's, it's still largely in a kind of romance mode or seeming to have romance characters, pastoral characters, and that kind of thing. Um. Is there a way in which we might also want to say, but we can see that it really is departing from the style or the habit of of, of Renaissance romance uh, or seventeenth? Actually, what Congreve is referring to is these are these huge folio romances of the seventeenth century, um, which are translated from the French by writers like Madeleine de Scudéry and Costas de la Calprenade, and, and they're kind of vast and very involved stories in which there are multiple narrators. Um, and m many couples who sort of travel across mostly the Mediter Mediterranean bumping into each other and saying let me tell you my history of um, you know, fighting in wars and, and being separated from my beloved um, so so if we're looking at Eliza Hayward's Love in Excess in 1719 and 1720 what, what is it that she's doing that's different in terms of maybe it's about tone as much as content I think maybe as well there's like a bit more sort of like interiorities and you kind of do get more of a sense of what the characters are thinking even if they're not very realistic characters and it's all like always really melodramatic and stuff you like I don't think in the old Arcadia and things mm. like that there's as much like mm. there's more just focused yeah. on like what they're doing there's a wonderful book by um Nancy Armstrong called How Novels Think and she says the novel is a kind of comes out of uh, John Locke's model of, of, of thought and thinking um, and, the, and the centrality of, of uh, reflection on sensation. So it's a description of sensation and then a kind of meditation on sensation. Um, I don't know if any of you looked at Love in Excess in, in that way, but did, did you? I asked you to sort of find passages. Did anyone find one from Love in Excess or were you all? Yeah,对。Okay,对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对。对
What's she doing in this passage, Hayward? She's kind of pointing to the like um, limits of language and actually expressing mm -hmm. ideas like love and seems to sort of compensate for this by very sort of um, a, a sort of like exaggerated um, sort of syntax that keeps running on and yeah. um, it's like it keeps trying to find a final point or meaning but instead has to keep making do with sort of repetitious um, like repetition and mm -hmm. like hyperbole and I s suppose it kind of uses rhetorical flourishes to compensate for the lack of actual meaning it can right so it's a kind of language which is gesturing towards love but also or, or towards extreme states of feeling but also somehow stimulating those states yeah. or, or mimicking them in its language does that yeah, I think that's what I was trying to get to. I'm also kind of suggesting the impossibility of expressing um, feelings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a very good article um, by Catherine King called New Context for Novels by Women in a collection um, on the novel. She's edited by Backshider and Ingracia. Uh, it's a Blackwell's companion. And in that, she, she says that what uh, Hayward is trying to do is to produce in prose a version of, of the sort of English poetic sublime that a man called John Dennis is promoting in English culture in the first two decades of the 18th century. So she say, sees this as a kind of prose sublimity, this only an experiment in, in prose sublimity. And the sublime is always, all the way back to Longinus, the sublime is that thing that is, is beyond language, beyond representation, but also energises representation, <laughs> makes it exciting. I suppose the, the important point there where we started in this was, is presumably this idea that it starts from an, obju an observation in this paragraph of a response on the part of two characters to the Count's entrance. Just me, and it, you could think Hayward is someone who wrote plays, there's a kind of dramatic theatrical um, sort of scenario here but the perspective is completely different it's an internal perspective it's the perspective of the character you know in a play someone could look aside and sort of say my heart's a flutter because he's come in but it's all rather artificial this feels very despite the heightened language it feels realistic in that sense of, of putting you inside a character's reaction and response and then generalizing it which is the next step that she Hayward habitually makes. So she'll sort of describe something and then say, and this is how we all feel, this is how feelings work. It's almost a kind of mechanical um, exploration of feeling. Does that make sense as a, within the text? It, did you, if you're thinking about Defoe, are there any similar kinds of moments in Defoe or is this is specific to Hayward, do we think? Um, this isn't really the same thing, but like uh, in Robinson Crusoe, there's also a lot of focus on like language and writing, and like, but it's kind of used as like a method of self-preservation. Mm -hmm. So I guess that whereas this is kind of pointing to the limits of language, Robinson Crusoe is more like showing that language is kind of one of the only things that makes us human, because it's kind of one of the only things that keeps that gives him a sense of identity on the island is like keeping the journal and kind of like the way he like names things in like relation to mm. himself and stuff like that. Mm. I mean some people you could also think about the modern novel as being quite preoccupied with with the mechanics and technicalities of recording and writing. One of the reasons that I suggested journal of the plague year is because it's so preoccupied that text with documents this sort of published lists of the numbers who've died in particular areas of London in, in the 1660s with um, uh, and there's a kind of concern as well with how the narrator HF has, it's it's called Journal of the Plague Year but he says he's reconstructed his account from journals he wrote he doesn't give us the journals, he gives us a reconstruction of those journals well, Similarly in Robinson Crusoe you get kind of extracts from the journal he kept at the time as yeah. well as a kind of retrospective reflection on that yes from yes. his kind of future older self 
And sometimes they're in conflict. Sometimes he says different things. Yeah, yeah. So. used as a way of showing his sort of religious reform because you can. He kind of sort of laments that he only used to pray, for example, um, in times of need, and didn't thank God for having preserved him on the island. But then he's kind of increased in that gratitude and devotion later on. And actually, I think he does. Um, like Robinson Crusoe takes like it goes in journal form of a date and then a paragraph or two until he has that dream where he's visited by a sort of angelic like supernatural figure and mm-hmm. after that like when he's prompted at the point when he's prompted to reflection that's when it seems to switch permanently to a um, narrative from the point of view of his like um, older self looking back and reconstructing right right so both of you seem to be wanting to think about or say something about is it providentialism about how to interpret that there's something going on in the novel which is about thinking about how to interpret yeah, I the world of, he finds himself in or his experience within it. Yeah, I sort of thought about that mode of retrospective narration that's used in Mothlanders and Roxana as mm-hmm. well, um, and whether that kind of charts a narrative of moral or religious reform. Or the, in this kind of opposite in Roxana, but there's attempts towards it. Because the having kind of retrospective narration of the past allows pres- the presentation of two differing views. Did so, you have an example of that? Um, so, um, oh, like I was saying about um, prayer in Robinson Crusoe. Mm-hmm. He, this is on fifty six in mine. Um, he says, after I got to shore and had escaped drowning, instead of being thankful to God for my deliverance, I ran about the shore, wringing my hands and beating my head and face, exclaiming at my misery. So his, it shows that his earlier kind of mode of thought was to focus on the negative, mm-hmm. whereas by the time he's narrating this, he's sort of moved to um, appreciating what he does have. And it kind of relates to what Abby was saying about writing, because... Um, he makes that list where he puts on one side the yeah. evils yeah. and on the other side the good. That yeah. was the bit I picked out actually, mm-hmm. which is page 69. And <laughs> well, if we all come up with any page number, we might <laughs> find one that we so share. In that section he says, um, I am singled out and separated, as it were, from all the world to be miserable in the evil side. But mm-hmm. then he kind of counters that. Um, by observing, I am singled out too from all the ship's crew to be spared from death, and he that miraculously saved me from death can deliver me from this condition. Mm. So he kind of moves towards the appreciation and recognition of God. That's interesting, isn't it? Because you could think, I mean, is that so very different from the discussion we were having about Hayward? Um, that uh, I suppose the question is whether whether Defoe is, is really setting out for his readers a question of interpretation. Is this just risk and chance? Do you sort of mean that Crusoe's experience, or is it providential design? And that that a lot of critics have talked about how that's a kind of central um, debate in Robinson Crusoe, and how uncomfortable that debate is. But if you read it from the perspective of saying, is Defoe interested in giving us the process of thinking that? A 17th century or 18th century man I mean actually the novel's taking place somewhere around um, um, the sort of um, Commonwealth years pretty much the 1650s I think it comes back just after um, the glorious revolution in 1688 um, so that we're, we're actually following the kind of mental process of, of Crusoe rather than being asked to make that judgment we're being given this kind of constant struggle to come to conclusion which is part of our thinking experience yeah. I noticed that in Joan of the Plague actually I kind of photocopied mm-hmm. um, an extract from it which is quite badly photocopied but um, you can still see yeah, the most good. of it um, yeah oh, thanks, Becca. and it's the bit where he talks about um, the cause of the plague and whether mm. well there's kind of three main interpretations of the plague um one is that it's like divine retribution for immorality kind of old testament style revenge um and the other two are more scientific there's one that it's kind of like um to do with um sort of bad air that kind of miasma Mm -hmm. idea 
And there's another fact, um, like the more correct one, that um, the plague is caused by contagion and infection. Mm. And in the bit I looked at in Jen of the plague, it, you can see um, HF trying to trying to combine the idea of the plague being caused by divine causes and by scientific mm. like infect, um, theory of infection. And he... Um, he tries to combine both, but it's not entirely sort of convincing. I'm just going to find the bits I can get. Um, there's a sort of contradiction where he says, like, um, he talks about um, how you can see um, divine action in the plague um, by the way that there are instances of intimate, singular, and remarkable providence. Um, when um, like specific people have been like delivered from infection, like these like wonderful miraculous instances, um, like when all their family have died and they mm -hmm. haven't, um, and he uses that as a sort of way into um, putting a sort of divine meaning onto the more um, scientific idea that he sort of proposes. And he kind of qualifies this in the next paragraph and he says, But when I am speaking of the plague as a distemper arising from natural causes, we must consider it as it was really propagated by natural means. But then he says, Nor is it at all the less a judgment for its being under the conduct of human causes and effects, for as the di divine power has formed the whole scheme of nature and maintains nature in its course, so the same power thinks fit to let his own actings with men, whether of mercy or judgment, go on in the ordinary courses of natural causes and it kind of goes mm -hmm. on and actually I thought there's the interesting sort of mix of content which doesn't really fit and I think there's an awareness of this in just a sort of um, syntax the way the sentences are laid out and it's kind of similar to Hayward whereas where she's dealing with the sublime and how it can be represented and this ends up with these really long um, unfinished slightly mm -hmm. incoherent sort of paragraphs um, with Defoe you have him kind of, it's not the sublime he's talking about, it's kind of the opposite, like how to, like how to explain, I guess, sort of a problem with, the, a problem with evil within a framework of divine providence yeah. and scientific yeah. methods. Yeah. And again, this seems to lead to a sort of run on of just never ending mm -hmm. clauses and qualifications. And I think the form of the novel, because it's so sort of, um, unstructured, unstructured. Like you can mm. run on from paragraph to paragraph, and there aren't even any chapter divisions in this book, and mm. there's like endless repetition and qualification. I think it kind of. And is that no? No, you're right, and that's really interesting. I think because it also suggests that there's something about a lack of in this early stage of the novel. There's a lack of expectation about where it might go, yeah. which seems to to map really well onto this debate about providentialism, <laughs> because providential design that says, well, somebody knows God has designed it, but we can't understand his purposes. So, so one of the sources for the novel that's very often cited and we didn't talk about much um, earlier on is, is spiritual autobiography, um, sermons, um, sort of spiritual memoir. If you think about um, uh, Bunyan's um, Grace Abounding, in this, which is published actually about the same time um, as the plague that Defoe is describing, <laughs> um, that's a that's a narrative about a sort of struggle to understand what what God has purposed for him, uh, and to come to terms with his own uh, scepticism and anxieties about what what's been purposed for him and and, and what God's um, agency or goodness is. So so that there seems to be. Uh, but you could say, well, that's all, those are established modes. There's something interesting about taking that language and putting it into a novel which is a secular form. You know, Robinson Crusoe isn't, and the Journal of the Plague Year are not advertised as spiritual accounts, but they have narrators who are trying to understand their experience within that frame but yeah. they're also rehearsing other frames I think theatrical frames or or frames from other kinds of narrative to try and deliver a story like i noticed in all of defoe's novels that i looked at the um more flanders robinson crusoe and the general plague mm -hmm. there's this there is this framework of like that you find in spiritual biography of sort of um 
sin and then repentance and then deliverance Mm. um but it's kind of hedged and qualified and i think just the way these novels always seem really prone to repetition Mm. um like in mole flanders you've got this sort of spiritual sort of quite um systematic framework kind of struggling against this like more i guess like picaresque sort of mm-hmm. mode where it just kind of jumps from yes. different adventure yeah. to yes and you've got a protagonist who who can't quite decide whether to read their experience according to one kind of map or another yeah. and and the, the kind of pleasure in the novel is being immersed in that consciousness you sort of being put into that consciousness and, and yourself trying to weigh up with them um I, your point Rachel I think was perhaps also there's, there's a kind of skepticism inbuilt in that that we're not clear although Mole says she's repenting yeah. aren't um, we as readers actually kind of taking a pleasure in reading about her criminal activity rather yeah. than her repentance and her reform I think um, the fact that the texts are all kind of prefaced by other personas as well kind of shows up the fact that the narrators are not necessarily reliable yes and that, that's always I think the problem for readers of Defoe is, is trying to work out how much with, with how much irony we're meant to be reading his central protagonists <laughs> are we meant to be reading them as kind of filters and mediators or are we meant to be reading them as, as being treated ironically as, as as people who are sort of um, I don't know held under a microscope or, or um, you know being exposed to our gaze for us to recognize their inconsistencies and their and their casuistry the way they tell stories to suit themselves um, it's worth bearing in mind as well I don't know whether you thought at all about this but if we think about, we've been talking about Journal of the Plague Year and Robinson Crusoe, they are both also historical novels. They're set yeah. in the 1660s and they're published in the 1720s. Did, did any of you manage to read uh, Paula McDowell's essay, the Oral Contagion essay about Journal uh, of the Plague Year? Um, I, <laughs> I, I gave you such a long list. No, I, I, I kind of looked at the first page and I have it up on my computer. Okay. <laughs> I remember this idea about rumour and yeah. all histories, post of printed histories. Yes. Like in Journal of the Plague, it keeps talking about then there were just rumours going around and the plague was in Oldgate and now it's in Greenwich or yeah. somewhere, whereas now we have newspapers and it's much more. Yes. And one thing she says is that's a misrepresentation. There were newspapers yeah. in the 1660s, so Defoe seems to be doing something quite um, mendacious there by pretending that there weren't. I mean, she sort of says what he's doing is celebrating modernity and the novel as um, a space in which uh, oral rumour can be dispelled by written record. Um, And the novel offers a kind of rewriting or historical perspective, a new historical perspective, uh, which can be compiled from record. That, that might seem at odds with the other discussion we've been having about the sort of uncertainty of the consciousnesses that we're encountering in the novel. It does kind of fit with the idea that the characters themselves are so retrospective that it's sort of the same idea of looking back and charting potential improvements on a smaller scale. Yes, yeah. Um, Rachel, we haven't heard so much from you in terms of your. Um, I kind of focused on Persona mainly right. um, in Robinson Crusoe, Mole Flanders and Roxana. Um, I read the Warner article, which mm. I found quite useful, about that kind of talks about um, Fielding and Richardson's novels in kind of as, as attempts to reclaim the novel away from the sort of negative perceptions of romance as having potential immoral influence. Mm. And um, I think you can see Defoe as sort of an intermediate step in that progression. Yeah, so Warner suggested that the new novel reorientated the idea of reader identification with persona um, right. into kind of advocating a morally improving emulation instead of the way it was perceived as potentially having an immoral influence. Um, so I sort of looked at whether that is also true in Defoe, um, which is fairly complex, I think, because as we've already said, like, although they purport to be yeah. sort of uh, progressions to repentance, you obviously can't quite tell if that's true. And um, in Roxana, which I kind of set against, um, it's more explicit that 
she doesn't really reach a true repentance. Um, I'll see if I can find the quote. But, um, at the end, she says, uh, well, kind of all the way through, she sort of gestures towards penitence by saying things like, I looked back on the life I had led with the utmost contempt and abhorrence. I thought if ever it should please God to spare me this one time from death, it would not be possible that I should be the same creature again. Mm-hmm. But then, within a few pages, she's like taking another lover, mm. kind of illicitly. Mm. Yes, I mean, Roxana is kind of the extreme limit point of that. What we've been talking about, isn't it? Really, that sort of. I mean, she's a, it's a sort of consciousness of psychosis and paranoia. I, I think um, both Moll and Roxana are really interesting. Um, there's a. Um, Another form we haven't talked much about is, is the secret history, the idea of the secret history, which is a, a sort of um, telling of a story uh, about contemporary society figures undercover to reveal you know, their vices, if you like, what they've, what they've been up to. Um, and it's also very closely related to the spy narrative, to the story of, of um, so there's a very famous novel called The Turkish Spy, it's very successful in the last decade of the, um, of the 17th century. Um, and the spy, of course, is um, a, a sort of silent observer of their culture, but they have to keep themselves invisible. And Roxana has this strange kind of secret history type paranoia. The Turkish spy who's living in um, uh, in France is, is um, and reporting to the Ottomans um, is an anonymous multi-volume novel, um, and it's a fiction. Is kind of constantly anxious about being discovered to be a spy. Roxana seems to have some of that kind of spy neurosis. You know, she's worried that people will uncover her true identity to the extent that her um, she repudiates her daughter at the end of the novel, and then Amy, who is uh, seems uh, her her servant, is a sort of weird extension of herself. Yeah, I, I goes off and murders well. the daughter. Well, we think she has anyway. Um, it's really kind of strange how they're sort of doubled throughout. Yeah. Um, but there's also um, that, for example, like uh, when Roxana is sleeping with one of her lovers, the Lord, um, it says, like mistress, like maid, as they had many leisure hours together below when his Lord and I were together above, um, Amy is sleeping with his gentleman. Yeah. Um, but there's also kind of the implicit hierarchy of low and high there. Mm. And, um, I Roxana actually puts Amy to bed with one of her lovers. Yeah, I did think about so. whether um, Amy could be seen as a kind of corruption on Roxana. You know how um, before that happens, um, Amy uses the argument of the biblical story of Rachel and Leah, and then that right. same argument yes. is appropriated by Roxana. Um, so I think it might just be a bit too kind of class prejudice to suggest that that's what's going on, but it does seem like it's gestured towards mm. I mean again you could sort of think I suppose if you think about the, the not, we looked at some um, plays, if you think about the comedy of intrigue it's very common in the comedy of intrigue for, for women servants to be suborned or used to get access to, to women um, to get access to uh, sexual access to women on the part of libertines so you know, the, the, it's, a, it's a common scene in the 17th and 18th century drama for the, the maid to be given some money um, to provide access, um, but again, in the novel or in the, it, sort of transporting those characters to the novel uh, allows uh, or gives the opportunity for a sort of exploration of psychological complexity that you don't get in the stage drama, where most often the maid is just on the make. Amy's um, psychology isn't at all transparent to us in the novel, is it? It's a first-person narration. It's kind of Roxana herself doesn't omitted. seem to know what she's says. There's, there's parts where Roxana will say that she could make a similar narrative about Amy, but she kind of puts hers above it, saying that's more interesting. Yeah, yeah. Or engaging enough. Yeah. I mean, I think Defoe's protagonist narrators are really fascinating in their sort of constant pursuit for con- of control, sort of control of the narrative and control of other characters around them, you know, they seem to be in a sort of battle for, for mastery. And you could sort of say that, it almost seems to be an anxiety that's caused partly because of the form they're in. <laughs> that the novel itself is a form which doesn't have a kind of clear direction, doesn't have a clear hierarchy of authority. So the narrator tries to take that role 
but is also presenting himself to us or herself to us, trying to sell himself. Maul is very clearly trying to present herself in a favourable way to us as readers. Again, you have this sort of problem about how ironically are we meant to read her self-representation. Um, you know, her claims to sort of suddenly realise that um, to no longer want to be married to her husband in Virginia when she discovers he's really her half-brother. Is he a half-brother or brother? Half-brother, half isn't he? Yeah. Um, and also Robinson Crusoe kind of does that in that like there's parts where like he's quite hypocritical or has kind of like double standards but he tries to sort of narrate it in a way that suggests that his way of thinking is kind of superior or like I don't know so mm. like when he's kind of talking about how he really wants to like murder all the cannibals and everything because yeah. they kill people yeah. it's like quite ironic but he yeah kind oh, of tries that, to there's that bit isn't there where he says like I knew it was wrong to like murder them so I decided I would just go and watch them with my gun and then yes. <laughs> see what God said I mean Robinson Crusoe could be the kind of quintessential novel in that sense of being a, a, a story about how difficult it is to accommodate others and our desire to kind of control and manage them so Crusoe um, you know his 20 odd years on the island in which he can invent himself are disrupted by the discovery of, of the single footprint in the sand. I always love that moment. I think, how is it possible to have a single footprint in the sand? Was someone in a boat and just put their foot out? Or was it a one-legged man? It's sort of, again, it's one of these impossibilities that's in the novel that is in a novel which is framed in such a realistic way that you don't even think about it until you stop and think about it. <laughs> it's sort of, because it's presented naturalistically. Having, uh, once he, uh, that moment of sort of seeing that footprint makes him, he, he then meditates on how he's going to accommodate other people. And in fact, what he does is he embarks on a kind of quite lengthy process of, of controlling his encounters with other people. So when Friday comes, he treats him the same way as he's treated that goat kid earlier on. He sort of hems him in, fences him in until he acknowledges his authority. And then the Spaniard comes and the other people get shipwrecked. And at the end he says, I peopled my island, he says. So he's made himself into a little monarch in which he's controlling his population. And I think he refers um, to himself as like king of the island yeah, and yeah, stuff. That's right. He's, that's right. So it's a sort of fantasy of mastering your environment and mastering other people, which the sort of where we started here, the sort of first person narration of the novel seems to make possible. There's um, like a weird at the end too when he goes back to the island and seems to like recruit women for it. It's almost like he treats the island once he's kind of left it as kind of like a farm where he brings up his goats yeah. and stuff. It's yeah. a similar sort of. I mean, there is a kind of um, source for that in uh, there's a novel by a man called Neville from the late seventeenth century called The Isle of Pines. I thought it was uh, odd actually that Robinson Crusoe seems like because um, Defoe seems like quite a sort of Whiggish writer and seems to be quite aligned with Locke mm. and. It's almost, um, you know, in two treatises, um, Locke attacks like Robert Filmer's patriarch and all those ideas of the sovereign as yeah. father and king, and but Crusoe seems to live by those ideas. Yeah. Well, I, I wonder whether there's a way in which the novel seems to be, or Robertson Crusoe seems to be saying, you have those sort of Whiggish or Republican ideas, but there's also a, um, there's something about the psychology that it represents which is wanting, uh, again, it, which has a kind of compulsion to control and manage its environment, and that somehow the image of being your own individual monarch conveys that. I mean, it is in some ways it's it is a republican fantasy because everyone is sovereign of themselves and their environment rather than being subject to an external sovereign. He, sort of, he acquires a, a kind of a sovereign authority in his own being. Um, so it's, I think it's not entirely incompatible, but it is odd um, that. Uh, that Crusoe's on his island inventing his own little sort of Hobbesian fantasy at the same time as what's happening in England is, is a sort of slow movement towards a contractual monarchy and parliamentary power which Defoe is in favour of. Um, there's a nice little article by Tom Paulin which was in the TLS called Fugitive Crusoe. Fugitive Crusoe? Yes, I think it's that. In which he says... Um, that actually Defoe was completely formed by his involvement in Monmouth's rebellion in 1685 and that he's always imagining back to that moment as a kind of lost opportunity. Um, 
think we've probably given the novel a good run around. <laughs> um, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or raise before we... Um, just in relation to Defoe and Locke. Yeah. Um, in Robinson Crusoe, I was thinking about how you can kind of see Locke's arguments about property and mm. the appropriation of property through the addition of your personal labour to yes. something. That's kind of how Crusoe goes about making his yeah. home on the island. Yeah. Like he appropriates all the items from the shipwrecked ship, but he has to do that by sawing out to it each time, which is his labour. Yes. There's um there's two critical articles, one by Barbara Benedict and another one by John Bender, but both of which talk about the kind of overlap between um, the term experiment and the term experience in the late 17th and 18th century and both of them think about the novel as itself a kind of experimental mode <laughs> and we've talked before about you know the rise of natural philosophy the new science again you might think a new mode like the novel wants to is engaging with those that kind of language but often what you seem to get is a kind of an attempt to be in a way it's experimental with narrative form that's gone before but it's also understanding in that Lockean sense experience as itself a kind of experimental laboratory <laughs> the, the activity of having a sensation and then reflecting on it is is a kind of exper experimenting with the self and I think it's a quite a good way of thinking about the novel as a, an experimental treatment of the self um, that's and is attempting to find new frameworks for doing that. Um, Margaret Doody, in her true story of the novel, argues that the novel always needs to be thought of as, as as progressive in that sense, even when it's written by quite conservative forms. There's something about its formlessness, its hybridity, that means it has to be experimental and progressive, has to be sort of pushing forward, even whilst it's apparently looking back, it's retelling history. Um. Okay, good. Thank you.